And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony, and I am here today with a very special guest. She is the author of The House of Rest, and her name is Kahija. And would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you for having me, first of all. My name is Khadija Tolabajaber. I tend to struggle with this question, so I guess that answers most of it. But I was born in Mombasa. I studied journalism, but I'm not a practicing journalist. I've always been interested in writing since I was a young girl. Yeah, I just, I have a book out. <laughs> and I hope you guys enjoy it. I am also, or I'm a former journalist, so that's super cool. I didn't know that about you. Before we get started into our other questions, I really want to know how the House of Rest manifested. When did this idea come to you and how long have you been sitting with it? And what made it a story that you really needed to tell? Okay, that's a really good question. I guess with this story, I didn't really sit with it for very long. I began it as a sort of project because I was having difficulty finishing my works in progress. So I decided to dedicate time to one project. It didn't matter what it was, as long as it was simple and I could finish it. So there was nothing simpler to me than, you know, the fairy tale where you kind of have, you know, a lot of this eccentric characters you always have there's always an adventure or a puzzle or problem to solve and then there's a happy ever after and that's it I initially I thought I was going to do it as a short story so I wrote the first chapter I knew there was also going to be a cat I knew there was always going to be a kind of silly but adventurous father because he would need rescuing eventually and I knew there was always going to be a kind of wise a kind of meddlesome grandmother and that the heroine would need to be an outsider somehow or different. So I wrote the first chapter and I was like, uh, I'm lying to myself. This isn't going to happen. And I don't know when, you know, because time, it's very confusing to me trying to keep track of dates on when what happened. But we had a power cut and it was very hard and we were all gathered in the sitting room and my mom told me, tell me a story. So I was like, okay, I guess it's now or never. So I told her the story pretty simply from A to Z, where Aisha goes on a journey with a cat and she encounters these three monsters and then she gets back and it's happy ever after. So that was really good to me, I think, in that it kind of let me just talk the ideas out, uh, these ideas that I was approaching in a very pragmatic way initially and wasn't sure I was going to continue with. So, you know, I just got to have fun with the idea as a storyteller rather than as a writer. And then I was kind of reinvigorated to approach it again and continue in like a linear way because I realized that approaching things in a systematic manner, A to B to C, was much easier and much less wasteful than writing a scene in the future and then going back and forth, trying to fill in the gaps. So I was like, actually, I think this is the best approach for me as a writer, 
to just tell it in a linear way where what I'm writing is what's happening and it's happening as I'm writing. So I wasn't ever really writing, then stopping, and then going to think about the story some more. I only allowed myself to think about the story as I was writing. And as I was writing, a lot of plot holes came up, a lot of characters ended up being invented and then resolved eventually. And the story, fairy tales are meant to be quite straightforward. Maybe there's a moral message, but like, you know, you finish with that. So I ended up kind of being surprised with the kind of detail I ended up adding. It felt very organic, I guess, if that is the correct word. And things just kind of fell into place. That, that's pretty much my run of it with this book. I don't know if my other projects will be as obedient or as easy on me. It was really fun. I didn't know I could actually finish something. So if <laughs> that, that, that was enough for me, I think. I was pretty happy with that. That's really interesting because there is just so much detail and I felt while I was reading it like I was missing certain themes so it's interesting to know the level of intentionality that went into writing thank you I guess when reading it it kind of has a dream like quality is that what it felt like to write it did you feel as though you were completely stepping into another world Mm, I guess you could call it something like that yeah something similar to that because When I was writing it, I wasn't really allowing myself to think of anything else. And I I was very casual about anything can happen. So I don't need to worry about anything. I didn't allow myself to delete or cancel out a single word. So I was like, if you have started a sentence in this manner, you have to, even if you have to ramble your way out of it, you just have to let it lead to its own conclusions. So I guess maybe that's where it came from. You know, not not trying to sweat the small stuff, just powering through. And I'm pretty sure a lot of editing (laughs) went into it. Also, Steve Woodward was a really good editor. And he kind of let what might have been a bit messy in the beginning just feel more complete, more like a dream, as you say. That's wonderful. I wonder if when you started writing it, did you have a particular audience in mind? Or was it, I just need to put this out here and complete it? To be quite honest, yeah, it was just, I need to put this out here and complete it. Not even, no one has to read it. I just need to complete it and be sure, you know, I actually finished something in my lifetime because I'd been really struggling with finishing any kind of work. But I guess the, the manuscript has a complicated journey in that what ended up being the final draft wasn't the original ending of the first draft. The first draft ends where she finds her father. And when she cries, I thought, okay, this is a good ending. Aisha finally expresses her emotions honestly. And I dusted my hands off of it and submitted it. And I was good with that. And I didn't think it would even be accepted (laughs) as a manuscript. And then I got the acceptance email. And even then, between submitting it and getting the news that it was accepted, I was already changing as a person. I was also sometimes thinking back on the story. And I was, okay, this could have happened a bit differently. The original ending I had for the book, it's a good ending to me right now. I don't know, maybe I can approach it a different way. So when the acceptance came in and we had all these, all the Grey Wolf creative team and the people at Grey Wolf read the manuscript and they were, you know, there were a lot of subplots, a lot of characters that you introduced and we would like a bit more. So the ending ended up changing. In the midst of me telling you all of this, I actually forgot what your question was. So if you could, please uh, say it again. I would love it, please, if you don't mind. 
I think I was just asking about whether you had an audience in mind yeah. as you were writing. Yeah, that's where it came in. This, this actually everything I was saying was related back to that. Okay, that was part of the point. <laughs> so what I mean is, initially when I was writing, right, the first draft that was just for me. I just okay, this is what I want to happen. Whatever, I'm just writing what I wanted. But then now there are readers involved, and I was, you know, when you're told as a writer, you always have to think about your audience, right? You have to have your audience in mind. Otherwise, you're going to lose any kind of audience. You're not going to have an audience. So then as I was writing more, I was like, okay, I have an audience. I have to think up more about them. So it's, the, the book was, I wouldn't call it selfish, but it, it was very, this is me doing what I want. Now I had to consider, you know, people are going to be reading it. What do I want them to take away from this? What do I want them to enjoy? this and my audience immediately that came to mind was people in my hometown people from Mombasa girls from communities like mine or girls from other communities the Swahili community because I found myself adding details to certain characters where I was like okay this is something that's pleasing to me and that's going to please them as well so I was thinking about my audience in the drafts that came along but it was always kind of me first if it pleases my audience I like that too for example, the shark hunters, uh, you have these uh, men and boys who do all this hard work. And this kind of hard work can also be seen as demeaning work. Usually, you know, people don't tell their children, you should go out and be a fisherman. because You know, that's work for people who don't have an education. That's the assumption. But I, I wanted them to be brave, but also wanted them to kind of embody qualities that I find admirable in my community. How shy they are in the presence of women. You know, they avert their gazes. They won't even look at Aisha. They'll do all this stuff. But I wanted them to be gallant and chivalrous in a way that is in line with ideas. Of, we don't see it really popular out there, but maybe more characteristic of what we want, what we see as admirable in men here. So. I wanted those touches. So uh, I, I guess, yeah, I just wanted to write something that I loved and that the people here would be like, oh, that's that's how it is. Oh, this feel, feels familiar, you know? That was a great example that you gave with the fisherman because I remember reading that. And when Aisha first goes and meets the, the shark men, I was a little nervous for her. I was, oh, these, this seems like a rough crowd. But you're right, that gentleness really juxtaposed nicely with it the shyness oh, that you. you mentioned yeah so I I feel like you did communicate a very specific set of cultural standards and norms and also just a very unique character as a group a group character yeah thanks very much in the in the first few drafts I was writing I had a lot more about the shark hunters and Steve was like okay this is all very nice but you we need to make the story smoother and I was struggling to finish the book so just adding any scenes that I wanted so I would go off on tangents with different groups of characters so I had more about the shark hunters and was very attached to the shark hunters I had to let most of their scenes go but I'm pleased with what was left behind I would love to write more about that kind of group of people I think it would be really nice that's wonderful <laughs> In your explanation that you gave just a few seconds ago, you mentioned that the ending of the book used to be different. And that was something that I kind of picked up on. Not that the ending used to be different, but I was, I noticed the fact that 
a lot of our climax happens very early on in the book. And the book is still completely interesting to read, but it seemed like a an unusual form to me. So when you went back and wrote more, why did you decide to keep your ending and put it in the middle of the book? Listen, I was actually uh, impressed that you noticed that, that the climax is at the center of the novel. <laughs> Not because I was trying to hide it or anything. But it, was, it was interesting that someone actually noticed that. Well, it's not so much that the ending... Okay, in the original ending, when I told my mom the story and my family the story, what happens is Aisha finds her dad. And just before they reach Mombasa, the cat is like, hey, you want to come with me to the House of Rust? And she's like, oh, no, I can't. You know, I have a family and everything. And he's like, I'll make them forget all about you and you won't have to just come with me in school, right? He casts, it's a spell, whatever it is. And everyone forgets about her. Her father arrives home safely. And then she's free to go on adventures and do whatever the hell she wants, you know? But upon writing more of the story, I realized that the ending can't really be about running away. You need to be able to confront the, the reality of your situation. You need to confront the things that you think are holding you back. The confrontation doesn't work out. You can cut ties. Maybe it will work out, you know, maybe not. But you need to have that bravery to figure out what you want and not just go along with people. So the story changed because I needed Aisha to take a hold of her own life and her own destiny. So I've always been interested in what happens after the adventure and other stories. Alice in Wonderland, whatever kind of journey, the Odyssey, everything. You know, what happens after you've had that great big journey? How do you change as a person? How do you not change? What do you have to confront about yourself? Because the journey can be something that's very colorful and very magnificent. But if you come back to your life without having changed or without deciding to change and deciding to take a hold of your own life, then it's kind of meaningless. So I guess that's how the story changed the ending, I guess, because I needed the story to have a different meaning. Emotionally, it had to be different. And that's just something I, I realized as I was thinking about it more and as I was writing more. I don't know if that answers the question sufficiently. No, it, it definitely does. You you drew on two things that I think ended up being really important for me as a reader of the novel, which was first the fact that she can't run away, but also that this gave her more agency. So this idea of of needing to settle with her home, I think that was really important because the way you wrote it, there's this real tension in the story between family and desire. And it was important to me that Aisha went to follow her desires, but I think that had you left it with the climax that we saw in the middle being the ending, it would have been more like Ali following his desires, which later turned out toxic. Yeah. And I actually, I have a question about the difference between desires. So what's the difference between Aisha's leaving for the sea and then her father's? Because as we learn in the book, her father's love for the sea is harmful to him. That's a really good question. And I had to be straight up. As much as I try to be a deliberate writer, a lot of the things that I write, the meanings sometimes occur to me later after I finished. I realized when you asked me that question and I was thinking about it, I already knew kind of, but I guess you gave me the space to articulate it more cleanly to myself. The difference between Aisha and Ali is that 
Ali is driven by shame and by grief. He leaves home to go to the sea and he does his business, but there's no proper meaning in it for him. Even in his relationship with the first creature, it's an unequal relationship. He keeps secrets. He's so bent on going on further and further because I think it's too painful for him to have to look back and confront his feelings of failing as a father and his feelings of failing as a son and his feelings of failing as a husband. So it was too hard for him to be as present as a father in Aisha's life. So the sea was his escape and escape for escape's sake and isn't good in the long term, I think. I think the difference, as much as we can go into the ethical issues of (laughs) Zubair cutting his heart, I I decided to leave that open for myself, not to look too deeply into that, whether it was right or was wrong. It's okay for me to be not quite comfortable completely with that. But Ali's desires were killing him. They were killing him, not only physically, but being so enamored with something that's out of his reach because he's too frightened to confront himself with his family. It meant he was living a kind of half-life, I suppose, or double life. But I think half-life is, is, is better. Aisha, I suppose the difference with Aisha is that she wanted to know more about the world and her place in it. Initially, she goes on the journey like she's being carried along. And she realizes that that's not the life for her. She doesn't want to be carried along in any aspect of life. So her going from escaping to seeking, I think that's the difference between Aisha and Ali. I guess that was the meaning of the entire book, really. You need to accept the love of the people who love you. And you find both Aisha and Ali are kind of approaching their relationships with people at home differently once they're back from their journeys. I, I didn't want Aisha to travel, you know, with regrets in her heart. I, I needed her to accept that she's loved by her family. That was really important to me. You know, I didn't want her to be running away. I think that's the difference. That's beautiful. Thank you. I definitely think that comes through in the story. On Aisha, throughout this story, it seems to be that she's searching for something to love, at least initially. And you craft a lot of different types of love in this story. Was that an intentional theme? And it doesn't have to be as you were writing. It could have been during the editing process, too. And how do you hope readers will think about love after reading this novel? That's interesting because I I think, like you say, some of it is deliberate. Some of it is accidental. Some of it, it just happens. But I think in life, there are many kinds of love. And especially for stories with female protagonists in them, there's usually a love story. There's nothing wrong with love stories. But I really shied. I, I didn't shy away from that. I was just like, I don't need that in my book. I'm not interested. <laughs> Sorry. And it's okay to not be interested in that. If you are, that's okay. If you're not, I just want, I just wanted that to, to be different for Aisha. I wanted her to, to concentrate on the different kinds of relationships that you can have with other people. So it can be a love of a father, love of a grandmother, love of people who are dead, love of your parents, love of a friend that you make. Even if the friend is really mean to you in a really weird way, 
and love of yourself. So I, I should, like you say, Aisha goes out seeking love because she doesn't believe that she is capable of love. And also, at the same time, she worries that accepting love will indebt her to people. I think that's the thing you struggle with as a girl because you love, but there's also that loyalty aspect, you know. You love your parents and you feel like you need to take care of them. I guess I wanted her to confront that relationship where she's like, just because my grandmother loves me doesn't mean she wants me to enslave myself from her because that's not what my grandmother wants from me. My grandmother loves me and I should just love her back. That's it, you know? You don't have to always turn into something, into this grand sacrifice all the time, you know? I think she just needed to accept the love of her family. And in accepting that love of her family, she she's, accepts herself as vulnerable and also... She's kind of trying to learn the language of what love means. I want basically the end point to be just because you're deciding who you're going to be and what you want in life doesn't mean you have to cut all your ties, you know. Sometimes your ties can make you stronger. And it was really important for Aisha to stop assuming all these things about her family all the time that the Hababa wants to marry her off because that's all Hababa wants from her. That's not true. Hababa wants her to be happy, and that's how Hababa understands happiness for her. And Hababa said, if you wanted to study, I would let I would make sure you studied. If you wanted to do this, I would make sure you do this. But you're being so weird, and you're not telling me what you want. Aisha, being able to finally communicate what she wants, I think that's really important. You need to be able to communicate with your loved ones. Realize that the gamble isn't really that huge of a risk anymore. The many different kinds of love, and especially with the crows, I really loved writing those crows. I had a lot of crow scenes I had to cut out. You know, you have White Breast and Gololi who are bound together because they have this communal, like, not hive mind, but crows are for crows, and crow business is crow business. But they're kind of also envious of each other, and the partners in crime, but they also don't really like or respect each other. They feel, White Breast really feels the loss of Gololi once she's gone. So I thought it was really cool to be able to, for all the crows to be calling each other brother. <laughs> the editors were like, oh, I thought Gololi is a girl. Why is White Breast calling her, calling her brother? And I was like, no, you don't understand. That's just how crows work. They call each other brother. And, you know, they're manipulative and conniving and kind of menacing, kind of awful all the time. All they want is mess and problems all the time. But they love each other and they love each other enough to confront what's going wrong as a community and try to fix it. There's many different kinds of love. And also Aisha having to to love herself is really important. And once you love enough, I think shame is destroyed. So working through feelings of shame, I think love really helps with that. It's not like the neat sum as the cat tells her. Just because I do this for you, that means you have to do this for me. Just because I love you, you have to love me like this. You know, you just have to do whatever it is. I don't know. I'm also trying to understand love as I go through life. (laughs) But at that point in time, I was just interested in really writing a story that puts importance on those relationships. Because I'm a girl from a Muslim community. And when you see stories about Muslim families, it's always, oh, my gosh, my parents are trying to marry me off all the time I hate I hate my mother or I hate my dad and I just wanted to kind of like clear up the misunderstandings between these characters and just let them be who they are in their community and also be able to find their way in that community
That's a long answer, but yeah, that's what I've given you. No, that's beautiful. That's I'm legit tearing up a little. I don't know if it's just because I'm tired, but maybe. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a beautiful answer. To kind of follow the thread of origins and also depicting a certain set of people and your community, really. Yeah. I'm curious to know what you want your readers from Mabasa to take away from this story. All right, people of Mamasa. I didn't have them in mind when I was writing it first, but they, they were dear to me as I was writing it. I want people in Mombasa to really take pride in their communities, to take pride in their traditions. Because in Mombasa in Kenya, like people tend to really look down on coastal communities because it's very hot here. There's this misconception that we are lazy. And because we don't have a lot of funding and educational institutions or a lot of effort being put in from the government. Ooh, not me talking badly about the government, but there's this also misconception that Mombasa people are somehow not very smart, you know, a bit backward. We're also at the same time really good and hospitable people. And, you know, we just want you to come and have a good time in Mombasa, which is true. We want you to come and have a good time, but don't, don't underestimate us, basically. They're kind of, you know, when you watch period dramas, right? Like Bridgerton and such. And they're like, all these rules. And you're like, oh God, that's insane. But it's also like, oh my God, that's romantic at the same time. I, I wanted people to understand in Mombasa, there's a lot of intrigues in terms of like how people conduct themselves. Speaking, like we're speaking right now, isn't just conversation. It can be sweet like conversation. But it can also be have layers and, you know, there can be power plays and manipulation taking place. I, I wanted that aspect, that aspect of cunning to be present because I think cunning is a big part of the community here and it's a big part of my community, community back in the old country in Yemen that and Hadramut, which my family came from. Where did they come from? Uh, Hadramut is in Yemen, the south of Yemen, which okay. is like, it's basically mountains, but a desert at the same time. But the people there are known to be very honorable and loyal and you know very hospitable at the same time but there's also that element of cunning and I, I wanted basically to have a kind of story which which had a little bit of bite to it I want all the qualities that are not not seen as great in my community but outsiders to kind of shine through as good qualities like being honest and being respectful knowing how to read the mood like when Aisha, when Hababa Hadiya comes to Hababa Sophia's house and, you know, she's being catty and kind of mean. And Aisha's, what's up with this old woman? But she can't say anything because if she said anything, it would be disrespectful and would make Hababa Sophia look bad. So it's those kind of things. In a normal situation that you'd see in any kind of movie, you'd be like, why don't you stick up for that person? And I wanted there to be a reason, you know, this kind of old manners that we have which I, I thought really cool cultural touches to have in there. I wonder basically for Mombasa people to have the feeling that, you know, they can read something that's a bit exciting, it's a bit ridiculous, it's a bit fantastic about their hometown, something that isn't about drugs and, and alcohol, <laughs> education, something that isn't an instructive text, you know, something that's a bit ridiculous, yeah. I wanted them to just have fun. You know, and to realize, you know, this is a place of a lot of wonderment. We have a lot of good things and we have a lot of scary things also. You know, we have our own folklore, I guess, our own inside knowledge. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe a Mombasa person would understand what I was saying. 
No, but I don't understand what I was saying in that last part. It's just a joke. I don't know. When you, where, where do you come from? Like, what city do you live in? Uh, currently, I live in New York City, but just the entire United States yeah. is me. <laughs> but, well, well, did you grow up in New York? No, I grew so I grew up mostly in Massachusetts and California, which are yeah. on opposite sides of the country. <laughs> oh wow! But like, there's there's things that you feel very precious about your hometown, don't you? Right? Or, or was so- it <laughs> all bad? I don't personally, but I definitely picked up on that thread throughout your book about yeah. the preciousness of your hometown and how there were, I knew enough to know when I was reading it that there were a lot of cultural aspects that I couldn't fully understand, but that I was beginning to graze while reading it. Oh, thanks. I hope you enjoyed those. It's a bit complicated to navigate in my real life. Sometimes you can go to a wedding and the things happening that you can't uh, perceive. Even me, myself, there's a conversation and there's a conversation beneath the conversation and a, combina- a conversation beneath that conversation that's happening. And I'm a very clueless person often, so that can just go past me. But when I put it together, I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, people are <laughs> conniving. That's interesting and I admire it on, almost. I'm like, okay, that's, that's, that's nice. You know, there are things about your hometown. Like even, uh, I, I don't know, I hear when people go to New York, they're now New Yorkers, right? Kind of, yeah. But I, I understand <laughs> what you're saying. I don't, personally, yeah. I don't personally have a hometown. So that's why it's hard when you're like, there are things about oh. your hometown. It's like, I don't have one. <laughs> okay. Wait, wait, so you t- grew up in Massachusetts. How do you pronounce it? Massachusetts? Massachusetts? No, Massachusetts? yeah. I, oh, Massachusetts. You're, you're getting it pretty Massachusetts. good. Massachusetts. <laughs> okay, okay. That's all right. Massachusetts. You're okay. Yeah, that one. Yeah. If it's not a hometown, it's a family. It's a, a community yeah. that you're in. I, I, I was watching one of your the YouTube videos. Are, are you Romanian or was that Maggie? You're, or you're Italian-American? That's Maggie. Maggie has um, like an actual somewhat culture. So in America... Sorry, this isn't related to our podcast. In America, a lot of us don't really have like cultural ties because we are, you know, people who just came and immigrated. Maggie has some recipes and stuff passed down from her family. I completely do not. I'm one of those Americans that's like, I have every, I'm I'm all of Europe. (laughs) Okay. But you still have, uh, okay, yeah, but that's the thing. It's a a different parts of cultures, but the culture that you're in right now and the culture that you've built with your family, that's something on its own, right? Because I'm I'm also from, my my great-grandfather emigrated from Yemen. So how we've developed here isn't how the community developed back in Yemen. So I think it's actually really cool. So whatever, if you're a mix of different cultural influences and whatever it is, you create this whole new culture on your own. So obviously I feel like sometimes an ache and I'm like, oh, what would life be if it was back there? But then over the years, I actually grew very much at home with the realizing like, you know, the community here, however way that it developed, that's my community now, which is mostly like my family and everything. And all these other different communities. I think it's it's still cool, but I hear like Americans also talk of how uh, America is this melting pot, and you also have that same kind of nostalgia for being able to grasp all these places that you come from. It's it's interesting. There's always going to be that longing there. 
But I think the right now and what you have right now is, is also something that's also deeply rich in culture. It's different. Most certainly. <laughs> to get yeah, back sure. to Mombasa. So I, I think that's really interesting that you were talking about that cutting and that definitely plays into the novel. There were a lot of riddles, I feel like, which was something that was new to me because that's not mm. something that happens in my everyday conversation. And then also the folklore really struck me as well. And so I was wondering if you grew up with those stories, how much of the novel was is based off of folklore that you grew up with? And how much is just your imagination and just stuff that you found along the way where you were like, oh, I didn't know this. This is pretty cool. All right. It's a really cool but complicated question because it has a really complicated answer, unfortunately. Mombasa is, how would I compare, compare it? The deep south of America. You have places like New Orleans, right? Where like you have supernatural isn't just superstition. It's something that's very much a part of people's actual lives. You know, it's accepted as the reality. So in Mombasa, we don't have it to that obvious an extent. But since we are a Muslim community and we're also a com- community that's in the Swahili coast, where people believe in like genies, and things that go bump in the night and, you know, they're a lot, like, uh, more uh, clever and they're, like, actual people. It's just that we can't see them. And, you know, they can mean us harm or they can mean us good. They can be an interference and such. So I didn't draw from actual established folklore, if I could help it, because I don't want mess in my life. You know, I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, there's this demon called etc. And then suddenly it's problems for me. <laughs> you know, I just it sounds a bit silly when I talk about it. But yeah, I also don't I, I don't really want to interfere with the unseen community. Oh, gosh, the more I talk about this, the more silly it must sound. But no, we believe that they're <laughs> the jinns are beings made out of smokeless fire. You know, they're one of the creations of God. So I I, I didn't want to go too much into that because. Can you imagine someone writing about your community willy-nilly in a book? And then if you were a very dangerous entity, you'd take a problem with that, wouldn't you, right? So yeah, most of the folklore is just made up, except very briefly, I mentioned the Nunda Eater of Men, which is a story from Swahili folklore, which is was a great kind of cat monster, like a sultan's son hunted. And in hunting, he would end up killing lots of beasts and like bring them back to his family and be like, is this Nunda? And they're like, no, that's not Nunda. And then he'd go and kill some more beasts and come back with them and say, is this Nunda? And they're like, no, it's not Nunda. And so that's why the crows are afraid of Almasi's rumor mongering and why they reacted so uh, strongly to the rumor mongering, because they remember what it was like when Nunda, eater of men, was out in the world. When he was being, when Nunda, he or she or they, whatever, I didn't really decide on the gender of the the monster. I think I used they, maybe, because I wanted it to be a bit mysterious. Because also, I didn't think it was really important. You know what? Initially, the cat was an it. And then he was a he. Oh. And then, and then he was a they, then he was a he. But it was very co- confusing trying to put that in writing because the way that I was writing was a bit confusing. So initially the cat was just supposed to be genderless. But then I realized in order to make it clearer to the audience, because I use quite a, uh, a lot of like weird language, it should be just he. So Nunda, I think, is a they because I didn't want to specify any gender for Nunda. 
yeah, that's why the crows were scared and why they reacted so crazily. Then there's the bui bui, the hooved bui bui woman, which is a woman in what I'm wearing. Nairobi people always have this horror story about how they were one time in Mombasa, they were walking down the road and uh, a beautiful woman in the bui bui came out or was on the road with them, on a deserted road with them. But then she had hooves. And, you know, it's really scary for them and they run away. So I mentioned her in passing. But most of the folklore is just made up. It draws from cultural touches that we have here. One of the things that I know for sure that are real was when the Sunken King mentions there being Mombasa being a place full of many contracts. In the old days, there were a lot of contracts between human beings and families and unseen entities. And you have almost like a working relationship. But then as people grew more religious, these contracts were broken. That's the extent of the folklore that I used that was actually real. You know, Hamza the cat was kind of like a callback to an Islamic figure called uh, one of the Sahabas, one of the disciples. I don't know if disciples is the correct word. Of the Prophet, peace be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was a lover of cats. So I always thought it would be cool to have a cat who's a scholarly like entity or like a scholarly animal and who kind of belongs to no one, only belongs to themselves. So that was a hint of things that we find interesting in Islam and in the, in, in our communities here in the, in the coast because you always have stray cats everywhere. And if you hear goats bring the night or donkeys bring on the night, it's, it's always something weird is happening. Maybe the devil has stepped out and the donkey or the goat has seen it. So you have those little, little things, but nothing specific or explicitly growing from the culture here. That makes sense. I guess just to kind of touch on the spirit, because you do have folklore. It's just out of the res- sense of respect, it's better to not yeah. bring it into your, your work. But in terms of, I guess, drawing from the spirit of it, do you think the the spirit of the stories that you were consuming living in Mombasa, do you think that influenced the choice to have animals talk or maybe the snakes? Or is that all kind of a personal, I want a fantastical story choice? I guess it's, it's kind of the same. I wanted a fantastical story choice, but I also wanted something that would be appealing to people who live here and you know we're from the Swahili coast something that was familiar you know the magical rules in every society are different you know fairies can't lie or was that something else I'm not sure was it is it fairies aren't allowed to lie or something I think that's a folk tale yeah in like um western Europe maybe yeah I think so and generally when you make a bargain with you know a mysterious entity they have to honor the bargain they'll circumvent it in some way you know, you have all these magical rules in different societies. So I wanted there to be like a specific Mombasa touch to those magical rules here. So the approach to magic and the approach to the supernatural is is different, I suppose. Aisha doesn't enter into any of her conversations with the beast expecting things will obviously go her way. I mean, she wants it to, but the beasts are kind of rude, you know, <laughs> Their characteristics are very uh, Swahili, you know, they're very Mombasa-based. But there's that ritual in the beginning where she exchanges a gift for them actually showing up. That was a callback to being hospitable and also to being, what can you buy for love, you know, what does, and all that things about mats. And Kitanda Wili, which is the riddle that Almasi 
the riddle game that Almasi and Aisha enter into. When I was a kid, we used to have, we used to play Kitanda really a lot. I've forgotten all the riddles. I've forgotten them now, but I don't see kids playing that game anymore. They're more like they're doing other things, but they're not playing. They're not saying Kitanda Wheelie and someone's saying Tega and then someone's saying a riddle. They don't do that anymore. So I, that was kind of like a callback to almost a forgotten part of my childhood. I wouldn't say magical rules so much, but like the approach to the supernatural is a bit different. It's a bit more rooted in if this were to happen here in Mombasa, if this were real, how would it unfold here? I love that. And I guess to kind of emphasize that you were mentioning cunning earlier. And I noticed that this is slightly different, but I noticed thematically knowledge was seemed to be an important part, at least from the scholar cat's perspective. So my question is, why was it important for you to write a book that focuses so heavily on the attainment of knowledge? Because there's a lot said in there about people who who don't know, like ignorance versus knowledge, right? Aisha can't be with Hassan because Hassan doesn't have any broader understanding of the outside world or outside customs or different ways of living. Yeah, I guess knowledge is what you do with it. That was the whole point of the scholarly cat. He's like, I know all this stuff and I can tell you all this stuff. I can tell you how to do something to get what you need, but what will be the point? He talks about faith being inherited like a copper or a brass pot or something along those lines. He meant you have to find out what you believe in this life. What are your morals? What are your what do you decide your destiny is going to be? Why is your life the way that it is? So knowledge knowledge the difference between knowledge and just acquiring information. Knowledge is actively doing something with that information. And you have people like Hassan who doesn't know and he doesn't really want to know, but then he doesn't really need to know a poor boy, you know? He, as far as he's concerned, what he wants in life is very normal, but it doesn't really suit Aisha, so it can never happen. And he's lacking that desire for knowledge of the world. He's lacking for that hunger to solve the mystery. So what I was saying about knowledge is is also about belief. You need to believe in things and ask yourself why you believe in the things that you believe. And what trap do you believe you're in? What is what is the trap? Is it a trap you've made in your mind? Is it a trap you want to navigate? Or is it a trap like you blame everyone for putting you in that trap, but you're sitting in that trap? Like you're okay with it. In knowledge, there's freedom. You need to use that knowledge. You need to use that experience in order to be free. It kind of reminded me a little bit of the Adam and Eve myth. Mm. I, I don't know. It's this. Is it the same in Islam? I'm most familiar with Christian, but um, like Eve eating the apple. I actually, oh, God forgive me. I I don't really remember. If I don't think we specify, but if anyone hears me, they can correct me if I'm wrong about who decided would eat the apple. You know what? Let me. Do you mind if I Google for a second? I think that's, yeah, that's, that's, okay. that's all right, because I don't want to be talking about something I don't really, I'm not sure of. I'd rather be certain than be spreading misinformation, because I'm strong in my faith, but there are a lot of things I don't always think about. In Islam, a lot of this stuff doesn't always have a lot of detail. It's mentioned in the Quran, you know, like the like Jesus and stuff. We love Jesus a lot. He's one of our prophets, peace be upon him, in our religion. But like a lot of the stories that you see in the Christian religion, you know, you go into a lot of details and such. 
And for us, we do have some of those stories, but it's, I guess it's not as significant almost, you know? It's like the, the details of the myth. I mean, no, Google, that's, that's Adam and Eve in Islam. Is there a story, though, about the attainment of knowledge? And maybe it's uh, told a little bit differently. I think it's told here when it's told. a little differently, yeah. Yeah, here, there when it's told, how is it? Oh, well, here, here knowledge is equivalent to sin. And from what little I do know of Islam, I don't think that's probably the case there. Yeah. <laughs> or like in, in that religion's system. But it also kind of reminded me of the story of Plato's cave, too which I think is a much more positive spin on knowledge attainment where people are all stuck in a cave and looking at shadows and then one person shows them the light, but some people are scared of the light and still want to look at the shadows rather than uh, go out and face the world. Mm, yeah, I, I, you have a lot of those stories, I think, in a lot of religious faith. In, in, in the Quran and the Islamic faith, there are a lot of times where knowledge is the knowledge of God and where all these miracles are shown and you're told, do you believe in God? I showed you this miracle. Here it is. The prophet, peace be upon him, he split the moon and then he put it back together. And some people are like, oh, yeah, actually, I believe in God. And some people are like, no, actually, I, I, I don't. I, that's not enough for me. You know, what do you cling to? You know, in this case, in Islamic case, obviously, knowledge is the knowledge of God. But just in general, what is keeping you from attaining the knowledge that you are being given? Let me check, actually. From what I remember growing up, I might be wrong, but I don't think it even specified what the fruit was that uh, from the tree or why it was forbidden. You know, you were just given a command, don't eat the fruit. And I don't think it specified that Hawa, Eve, in this case, was the one who was we have to eat this fruit. Come on, man, right? I don't think there's ever that kind of specification. They just kind of fall in, into, you know, disobedience. In disobeying that law, they were banished. They were thrown out of heaven and had to live on earth. Yeah, uh, so we said, O oh Adam, indeed this is an enemy to you and your wife. Then let him not remove you from paradise so you would suffer. Then, But Satan whispered to them to make apparent to them that which was concealed from them of their private parts. He said, your Lord did not forbid you this tree, except that you become angels or become of the immortal. And he swore by Allah to them, indeed, I am to you from among the sincere advisers. So he made them fall through deception. And when they tasted of the tree, their private parts became apparent to them and they began to fasten together over themselves from the leaves of paradise, and their Lord called to them, did I not forbid you from that tree and tell you that Satan is to you a clear enemy? So yeah, a God gives a command. He doesn't really specify why he gives a command, but Shaitan goes in and kind of messes with them. So yeah, it just says they, they ate from the tree. I don't think Hawa specifically, or Eve uh, specifically, was the, the instigator in this story, in, according to like, the Islamic faith as much as I, as I know. I have to double check because it's it's all right for me to talk about what I assume, but I just want to be certain. No, that makes sense. That's really interesting to know. I like that Eve's not the instigator. <laughs> and I also like the defocus. I like that it's more about disobedience and less about, oh, you're doing this thing and gaining more knowledge and that is sinful. But mm. that's but your explanation too about knowledge being godly, did that play into your depiction of knowledge at all and it's okay if it didn't i don't know i i don't think so 
but the way that knowledge is described has religious undertones when I was writing it. The cat uses belief as a way to talk about knowledge when he's talking to Aisha. But I also wanted to kind of destigmatize the idea that you shouldn't question what you're reading. To us, the Quran is a perfect book. So what you should be questioning is the way maybe your family is practicing, you know, because it's culture and then there's religion. And so, you know, it's all right to stop and be asking questions. Why do we do things like this? And then, you know, someone will be like, oh, we do it like this because of this. And then read up more on it. But sometimes you can be in situations where if you ask something, not because you're asking because you want to disbelieve in what you're believing, but because you want to strengthen your belief and you want to understand why you're doing the things that you do. I think it's okay to ask and you should be asking. Islam by by nature is, is a religion that tells you to question. It tells you, even with the, the Quran, it's, uh, we're told that God brought it down. The angel uh, Jibreel brought it down as a perfect text. So you can look at it however you want it. You want to look at it, but you need to approach your faith, not just like some sheep who's just doing it because, you know, I'm not, I'm not my, I'm Muslim just because my parents are Muslim. Of course, I'm really glad to be born in a Muslim family. We have a lot of reverts who they converted to Islam, but then like they don't have that. They really wish their parents were Muslims and be able to like grow up in that culture and be able to, you know, feel like a family with other Muslims. But I didn't inherit my faith, just like some kind of clothes I wear. I need to believe in what I inherited and I need to make it mean something. So, yeah, I I think it's really important to question why you're doing the things that you're doing. And it's okay to say, I don't know, and kind of move from that. You know, when you ask a question, it's not blasphemy. You know, you should always be seeking knowledge. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. Is there anything else that you would like to add that we didn't get to touch on in this interview? No, for now, I don't think so. Maybe I'll realize it later. But no, I think this is a really good interview. You let me talk a lot. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. I hope that in talking, I, you know, especially when we talk about Islam and talk about, even like you asked me, Adam and Eve, I hope if I've gotten any of that information incorrect, that any of my Muslim brothers and sisters listening to this can come and correct me because I'm always eager to learn. I hope that you had a good time with the interview. I really enjoyed it. I think it's really cool to be able to share my hometown with the world. I think it's it's really fun to be able to see you read and get insight into how we function and what's important to us. And yeah, thanks for reading the book and thanks for asking me questions about it. It It was really cool. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on and thank you for writing such a beautiful book and for answering so eloquently. I really appreciate the extra context that you gave and your time. Where can readers connect with you about your work if they'd like to? Yeah, sure. Uh, They can find me on Twitter at K-A-A-L-I underscore M-S-A. I don't really share my work that often but whenever I do publish something which happens very rarely I do share it follow for more information about Kenya about Mombasa about anything if you want I got rid of my tumblr a long long time ago in the tumblr exodus (laughs) we all left (laughs) we all left oh I wish Maggie were here (laughs) oh she has opinions (laughs) she also loved tumblr 
It was great. She yeah. honestly, she was part, she was part of Plumla. That was that was that's the real diaspora. I think. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the exodus. That was awful. Gosh, oh, it was really nice. I used to have a writer's website there, but yeah, I don't have one anymore. I know I've never had one actually off the record. I've never had a Tumblr ever in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit before you leave about your upcoming panel at the Miami Book Fair? Oh yeah, oh, I it was my first it was basically my second video interview, but that was my first recorded online interview with Helen Habila who wrote uh, Waiting for an Angel and a lot of like really wonderful books and a lot of wonderful short stories. And it was such an honor to be able to talk to him. He's he's a really really good writer. I was so nervous. I was sweating. But it was fun. I forgot that we we were being recorded, I think, at some point. Because <laughs> it was like talking to you now. You know, I just went on and on and on. But it was it was really nice. And we talked. I read, I did a reading for the first chapter of the book. And we talked more about the book like I, I'm doing with you right now. It was just generally very nice. It was a very good experience. And I had a really good one with you, too. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that you've had a good experience. It really makes me feel good to hear that. And I've, I have a great experience. This is so much fun. I get to talk to the authors <laughs> of these amazing books and you're one of them. And oh, it's it's very fun for me. <laughs> but do you know when the Miami Book Fair panel is going to air? Um, November, I think 16th. So your panel sounds fantastic. And just so our listeners know, they can find your conversation and all of the other amazing programs to be found at the Miami Book Fair 2021 at MiamiBookFair.com. Thank you again for having me. It was an honor to be interviewed by you. Say hi to Maggie. And it was really cool to be on the Miami Book Fair as well. And shout out to oh. Grey Wolf for, for supporting me and for letting me get this book out into the world. I, I, I can't even put into words the, the way this changed everything for me. And so I'm really grateful. Alhamdulillah. So thank you. Thank you. And have a, have a lovely rest of the day. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBCpod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.